Welcome to One Health Wednesdays. This podcast aims to promote the principles of One Health and encourage professional development. Here's your host, Ginger Dixon. Hi, everyone. Welcome to One Health Wednesdays, a collaboration between LabOp Global and One Life Epi Solutions. I'm Ginger Dixon, and I'd like to introduce our guest today, Lisa LeClaire. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ginger. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've been excited to talk with you. I know this meeting has been a, a long time fermenting, so. <laughs> Glad yeah, it's been tough to get together. <laughs> <laughs> right, which definitely, definitely happens. Um, so you are a, a international climate change thought leader, and we, and we had a little bit of discussion about how you know, titles are are not always all encompassing to demonstrate, you know, all the work that we've done over the course of professional career. So we'd love to hear more about you know, your background and how you get to this point in your career and, and how your work connects with One Health. Sure. Yeah, that's, it's actually, it's a really good question. When you, when you contacted me um, for this through a sort of a mutual, uh, you know, connection, um, that we have someone that I went to high school with it, it actually brought me back to uh, why I got into the area of climate change and what, what sort of, you know, propelled me into, into this as, um, it has a lifelong, a lifelong uh, interest and passion. Um, you know, I've, I've moved around and changed different jobs in different countries. Um, and you know, there's there there's a there's there's there are jobs and there are you know careers and you know, vocations and life callings and and for me the one on climate change actually started in in university. I'm I'm originally from Montreal. I grew up in Montreal, and um, probably when I was around 15 or so, I discovered a love of running, of long distance running. Um, you know, which is actually one of the ways that I, I know one of our, you know, our mutual connection, uh, Robert, I was, uh, it was one of those things that drew me out of what was probably a, you know, sometimes in some ways, a bit of a difficult upbringing. And it's a sport that gave me, you know, made me, I think, who I am today. And when I was in university, I was sort of really picking it up and I had, you know, started competing at the national level and, you know, was on the varsity team and it was, it was going really well. And then one day I was, I was doing repeats on the track and, um, and my, my lungs tightened up. I I felt a, a constriction in my lungs and, and I had to stop and I was hyperventilating and the, you know, the, the coaches kind of came over and, and uh, and they recognized what was an asthma attack, and uh, I'd never really had that before. Um, and then over the the course of the next couple of weeks, I'd gone to see you know doctors and try and understand what was going on and why I was having all of this you know sort of felt like an elephant sitting on my chest. And you know while it's uh, you know causation and correlation are are, are not to be confounded. But I had started running in downtown Toronto. I had, you know, before that been sort of more in the outskirts of the city and never really, you know, in the city center. And at the time, um, you know, more than 20 years ago, I hate to admit, but, um, you know, air pollution in Toronto was quite high. The ground level ozone and particulates and 
um, you know, we hadn't really started putting in place measures to to clean up our our you know local air quality in the same way as as we are now. And I came to you know to understand the 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 links between air pollution and and respiratory health. Um, and for me, I always believed, and you know, the, it is it is there is a link between air pollution and respiratory diseases. I'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, but I my my running career basically ended because um, because of this, and so I started to become much more interested in the links between pollution and health. Um, and it started there, and I never really stopped. I ended up taking more courses in in climate change and in uh, you know sort of soil and water pollution. Really uh, focused a lot on air pollution because it had affected me so so directly. Um, so that that was the beginning of it for me. And then I've I've moved around to different international organizations. It works for some from UN agencies to a number of international development banks. Uh, worked for the government. And uh, it kind of came full circle. I've come back to Montreal about a year ago and started working for a, a consulting firm, um, which which was really exciting because when I left here, there was there weren't a lot of jobs in climate change and especially climate change adaptation. And I came back and I was I was astounded on you know on the internet how many job postings there were in climate change and it, it really picked up. So so now I'm back home and providing you know services and advice to different government organizations and private sector on on how they can adapt to climate change and address climate change issues. That's fantastic and definitely encouraging that you're seeing more um, positions and more focus in climate change, you know, and sometime later coming back. So that's definitely encouraging and inspiring to hear. Yeah, it is. It's, um, you know, part of it is driven by by legislation and regulations becoming, you know, governments are playing a very strong role in, uh, you know, and in, in enforcing the the requirement and the need to sort of protect our environment at the same time as, as we develop. Um, but a lot of it, I think, is because organizations are starting to, you know, to see the impacts on their on their bottom line, on their on their operations, on their infrastructure losses, um, and also, I don't know if it was the same thing for you, but I was I was living in in Rome at the beginning, in Rome, Italy, at the beginning of the pandemic, and a lot of people were commenting on it. There were lots of articles in the newspaper on how how clean the air got during the beginning. <laughs> I mean, you know, not that I want to promote pandemics as a solution. We are far from it. Don't 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 take that the wrong way. But, um, you know, we had foxes in our backyard. We could, you know, all of a sudden we realized how much smog there had actually been because the sky was was blue and we could see it, uh, you know, at a distance that we couldn't see before. Um, so it gave us kind of, I think, a taste of what, you know, how 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 wonderful uh, our our local and, you know, even urban environments can be when it's when they're cleaner. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And. I, I'm with you. I saw the same, um, you know, articles on how the the air was cleaner and, you know, we saw less of certain types of emissions and, um, yeah, that was a good byproduct of, you know, a horrible, um, scenario, but I'll, uh, I'll take silver linings and, and definitely as a lesson for us of, you know, what things could be if we can do some of this cleanup work and, So I want to ask, because um, you said as now you're working on um, consulting and, and working with different clients, 
What are some of those main targets or, or weaknesses that you and your team are focusing on, um, both as, you know, working on um, climate change prevention and then also to, to build up resilience to, to a changing climate? Um, well, one of the things that we try to, you know, to reinforce is that the past is not representative of the future and, and the past is maybe not even representative of the current. So a lot of the times when we, you know, we make decisions, we, we design things, we build infrastructure. So we work quite a bit in infrastructure. We look at how, how the, so the climate patterns were in the past. So if for, for those of, of, um, of the listeners who don't know, a, a climate uh, as opposed to weather is, is the average of things over 30 years. So over a 30 year time period, you know, what do the temperatures look like? How many floods do we have? Um, you know, what are, the, what are the, the characteristics in terms of extreme events? You know, do we, do we experience tornadoes and cyclones uh, during that 30 year period? And we use those types of averages to design, you know, how, how high to build a bridge, uh, how much drainage to put in uh, to, a, to an urban infrastructure. Um, and, you know, more and more, uh, both at the government level, but also at the, the owners of these assets and um, expert firms like where I work now, which is called Stantec, uh, will provide advice on how these trends are changing in the future and over the lifespan of that infrastructure that's being built. So when we, you know, when we build something like a bridge, we're, we're building it for 100 years and the climate in 100 years, we know is not going to look um, how it looks today. So there's these very sort of very specific things that we can help our clients understand. And there's uncertainty in that because, you know, just like any projection into the future, and, and we don't only do these types of modeling, modeling of the future for climate change, but it's in everything. It's in, you know, when you buy stocks in the stock market, they're projecting into the future. Companies are, are doing it all the time. Health planners are doing it all the time. Um, so there's a certain amount of uncertainty. So it's really understanding what those uncertainties are, where what the risk tolerance is. Um, so it you know might not be sure that you're going to have a higher flood, but if it happens, the consequences are disastrous. Well, maybe it's worth designing for that anyways, because you know the the, the implications of not are too great. Um, so those types of things, but also uh, adapting to climate change is as much a process as it is an outcome. So it's not only something that you can, um, you know, touch and see in something very concrete and specific today, but we need to start being able to understand that the change is constant. The climate is continuing to evolve, just like many other things, and build that into the way that we make decisions. Um, so, you know, on a constant basis, being vigilant for those types of changes, observing them, having systems in place to be able to respond and and adapt flexibly to, to the changes as they happen. And, you know, one of the areas that I've always felt was really important because I've seen a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of clients struggle with this uncertainty when they're, when they're making an investment and, you know, we're talking billions of dollars of investments in infrastructure, um, is that there are, you know, green solutions that, um, you know, are not perfect and they, they come with their own set of, of risks, but, um, you know, doing things like improving uh, soil cover uh, increasing forest cover, having uh, a more robust ecosystem and, and biodiversity are all things 
that make our natural environment more able to handle those shocks when they come. So if, you know, if you have an area of land that has very rich biodiversity, very good, uh, uh, you know, green cover next to one which has been denuded, you know, deforested, degraded, and there's a major rainstorm that comes along, well, you know, guess what? The, you know, the healthy, the, the ecologically rich uh, and healthy area is going gonna, is gonna to be able to handle that a lot better. Um, so, you know, it's kind of my, I don't know, maybe, I don't know if it's a secret objective, but I'm, I'm a really big proponent of using nature-based solutions, um, you know, because they, they also provide a lot of health benefits. Um, and I can get into the health, the health side of it ad nauseum because it's, you know, it's, it's a passion I've always had. Um, but more green spaces of, is a very easy way of reducing a lot of the impacts of climate change and reducing greenhouse gases. Yeah. And, and as you said, it's kind of a, a win-win for everyone, you know, that helps the, the natural environment and helps protect against, you know, natural disasters and building resilience that way. And, um, and yeah, we'd love to hear more about, um, you know, some of those health connections that, that you'd like to highlight. Sure, sure. And I mean, I'll, please cut me off if, if I go on, because <laughs> it's something I could talk about for, you know, for a while. Um, you know, it goes back to my, uh, you know, the original events that kind of got me, you know, really ob observant of these linkages when you, you know, when you think about climate, you know, temperature, rain, all of that stuff, um, you know, the way that the climate is changing really affects a lot of the social and environmental determinants of good health. It affects things like our clean, clean air, um, you know, which I mentioned as, you know, the contributes hugely to a lot of respiratory and cardiac, you know, illnesses and diseases. Uh, the World Health Organization estimates that about 7 million people, which is, a, it's pretty shocking, I find, but 7 million people die every year because of exposure to fine particles in polluted air, um, you know, which lead to things like stroke, heart and lung diseases, lung cancer, uh, chronic pneumonias, um, and in a lot of parts of the world where the healthcare system uh, isn't always there to to provide a safety net, um, you know, so that that air pollution, air quality issue is just a very is a very big link between the causes of climate change. So the pollution that causes climate change and and our health, uh, but also safe water. Um, you know, having having enough water. So there's a lot of parts of the world where water stress is a big issue. Water quality becomes a big issue as well. Um, and then a, a really big one is food. So climate change is uh, is affecting our ability to produce sufficient and good quality food. And the food system also happens to be the biggest, you know, the second biggest cause of greenhouse gases. Um, and then the last area is is you know secure secure shelter. Um, you know we've had. Um, some some pretty major events on the east coast of Canada in the last couple of weeks and you know in the US as well you're no stranger to this but you know people lose their homes lose ac access to electricity and it's often the most vulnerable people in society that suffer the most um, so there's a, there's a there's a link between the sort of the causes of climate change and health so the air pollution um, and the um, the loss of things like forest cover and 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 agriculture that are huge 
causes of greenhouse gases, which which create the climate change effect, but also the flip side where those impacts, those those major changes to this huge dynamic global climate system that we have directly impacts our health as well. Um, and then a, a last area that's starting to become a little bit, uh, you know, talked about a little bit more is um, eco-anxiety. You know, I was surprised I read not long ago, and I don't remember the, you know, the source, but there are more and more kids under the age of 12 who are, who are being diagnosed with different types of anxiety disorders. And they had, there was a, a study, and I'll, I can try and find the, the study for you later if, if you're interested, um, where they did an interview with a lot of the kids of some of the, the reasons for their anxiety, and climate change was one of them. So I think it's really important that we arm our kids with a sense that there's there's something that they can do about it as well, that there isn't this feeling of, of you know, of helplessness and, and we have to set the example as, as adults, of course. Um, so, um, you know, I, I kind of think and I think I'm not alone in this, that what's healthy for the planet is is healthy for us. And uh, so if we look at, you know, at greenhouse gases, um, the biggest source, of course, energy. So the you know the fossil fossil fuels through transportation and building costs, building energy, uh, industrial processes, um, and you know simply doing things like um, adjusting the way that we move around, you know, our mobility and our our urban planning. Um, I'm I'm impressed every time I come back to Montreal at how much the city has invested in uh, you know in bike paths. Um, and of course, you know, everybody hears Montreal and they think of our winters and, and think, how do you bike in minus 30? And, you know, I assure you, there are a few months of the year where there are definitely fewer cyclists on the road. Um, you know, but the city has made it, uh, has created uh, safer and uh, secure and, you know, pleasant places for people to move around by bicycles and providing that infrastructure for people to have that option um, you know, also public transport, huge investments going into into public transport and, and light rail, electric rail, extending the metro system. Um, you know, so less and less people are actually taking their cars to move around. And, you know, hey, guess what? You know, being more active, getting that 115 minutes a week of cardiovascular exercise is, is good for your health, too. Um, you know, exercise and, and moving around and not being less sedentary leads to all kinds of, of positive health benefits. You know, the physical ones, of course, the the, the cardiac health, the respiratory health, uh, but also cognitive, um, you know, lack of mobility and, and lack of exercise is, is linked to, uh, in, you know, a, a quickening of uh, a cognitive decline. Um, so there's, there's, there's just such a win-win for, for people to start making those types of choices in, in how they move around. Uh, in terms of re uh, reducing greenhouse gases and, and for governments and the the public sector to, to provide that structure for people to do so, I think is just such a, a really important thing. Um, you know, the other thing is is building building efficiency, energy efficiency for buildings. For, for some, in some places, it's air conditioning and, you know, more parts of the world, it certainly is the case in, you know, in, in, in a, even a Nordic country like Canada, uh, where we're starting to need more air conditioning in the in the summer. Uh, and heating, obviously, in the winter, but um, there, there's lots we can do to make our buildings more efficient. Um, and again, you know, government putting in place the incentives for people to do so, and people just starting to value that as as something that they can do and and contribute, um, you know, to the environment, but also to their pocketbooks. It, it reduces your it reduces your costs. So there's 
there's lots to gain, um, you know, for for both your your wallet and your health by by doing these types of things. Um, the other area I would talk about is the food system. Um, it's always surprising, I think, for people to realize how much our food systems contribute to greenhouse gases. It's it's a full thirty four percent of greenhouse gases globally that are uh, created by the food system. A lot of it is the way that we use land. Um, and this is especially for raising animals. Uh, when you think that you know, 40% of ice-free land across the planet is used for agriculture. Um, agriculture, uh, you know, it, the different processes that are used to, to manage the land are um, uh, contributors to things like methane and nitrous oxides. So the soils, when they when they get mixed up, when they're tilled, release these very potent greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. Uh, but also the way that, especially with industrial agriculture, a lot of the inputs to agriculture, things like fertilizers, are very energy intensive inputs. Um, and then the types of food that we grow, you know, and, and there's an order of magnitude, but um, you know animal protein and and um, using land for for things like you know cattle uh, you know dairy products as well is um, is is a is a really low-hanging fruit especially for a lot of uh, you know, northern and western countries where meat consumption tends to be pretty high uh, when you think that you know there's a good 34 percent of greenhouse gases caused from this sector and most of that is from things like livestock just reducing meat consumption. And, you know, uh, of course, everybody has different uh, health requirements and, and I'm not a doctor and it definitely wouldn't, um, you know, I'm not trying to encourage everybody to go, you know, vegan. I'm not myself. I do eat, I do eat meat once in a while. Um, but reducing our meat consumption is, um, is one of the biggest ways that we can personally, on a personal level, reduce greenhouse gases. And then the other one, which which I just think is something that shouldn't exist in the world, is uh, food loss and food waste. Mm -hmm. uh, so food loss is when food is is grown, um, and then it never makes it to market. So it goes it goes to waste, and this is often something that happens uh, in places and areas where uh, there isn't the 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 in the infrastructure to preserve food once it's harvested, or there isn't uh, access to markets to be able to sell it. And so the food is, is lost. Um, and then the other one, which is um, most of the problem in, you know, in a lot of countries like ours, like in, in Canada and the US where, where food is wasted. So it's, it's produced, it's brought to the market, someone buys it, we buy it and we throw it away. Um, you know, I know I, this happens in our house, even though we, we really try to avoid it, but, you know, buying, buying too much food that we don't end up cooking because we don't have time. Um, you know, we don't make it a priority and then and then we throw it out or you know, we compost it, which is, you know, which is much better. But that's 17 percent of food that's produced that is wasted. And you think about how much you can you know, reduce all kinds of different pollution, including green, greenhouse gases, just by reducing that. And at the same time, improving global food, food security, um, because there are, you know, food is not evenly distributed. So uh, these for me, are just really low-hanging fruit, you know, addressing the food loss and the food waste in the agriculture system. Yeah, and that's a surprising um, percentage, that that 17% for food waste. Um, mm -hmm. That would be that high. I know um, 
I've seen programs, you know, aimed at reducing food loss, food waste, but I really like that you've highlighted these things that that people can do in their everyday lives as well to to influence these changes and, you know, put in their own, <laughs> uh, put in their own contribution to, um, to reducing these effects and reducing yeah. climate change. And it's so good for your health, you know, eating a, a more, you know, more, a more plant-based diet, uh, moving around a little bit more, you know, being a bit less sedentary, um, having more green space, um, which is, you know, also proven to be good for your soul. It's certainly good for my soul. Um, you know, my forest is my is my holy place. Um, so there's 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 really you know that 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 link between a healthy environment and our health is just so inextricably linked that we can't. You know, it's such a pertinent conversation to be having. Absolutely, I'm very one health, and I. Um... There's some great research too, as you said, on um, green spaces and urban areas and the connections with mental health and in reducing some of these chronic diseases. And so definitely, um, and I can absolutely empathize with, uh, with your forest being your holy place. I love that. <laughs> and it's, yeah. yeah, it always has been, even, you know, when I was a runner, that's where I would run. I would, I would run in the forest. I felt like you know, the, the freedom and the peace that I got from that. And it's, it makes me sad to have, you know, fewer and fewer of those places at, uh, at easy access. And I, and I want my kids to be able to grow up in that, you know, I think it's, I think it's important for them to see green and to be in nature and be connected to nature. It, I think it makes for more empathetic um, adults later in life as well. Yeah. Yeah. And as you said, you mentioned earlier about, you know, eco-anxiety and the impact on youth. Um, we also want to consider that too, you know, that if our, our natural resources and natural environments are reduced, the impact that that, that can have on them in the future as well. They, they kind of get this unfair position of um, inheriting, you know, what's been done so far. And so um, I'm really excited to see people doing the work that, that you're doing and being so passionate about it and uh, highlighting those connections and working with people um, to help them, you know, to build resilience and, and understand these connections. And I think that's really important. And I want to ask, you know, do you have advice for people who are wanting to get in this space or maybe, um, you know, early in their, their climate change prevention or, or one health careers that you would offer them? Gosh, I, um, I do, but I'm I'm not sure that I think they're transferable. I don't know if it's so specific to just this sector, but you know, it's something that's very much in the you know in the One Health conversation. But you know, the the sort of the connections between areas, the the, the system, the system as a whole, and how it's connected. Um, I I remember I was a, as a kid, sort of my mom was always really worried because she she used to feel that I was all over the place is, is what she used to say. It was sort of mm-hmm. my my interests were very broad, I, you know, and I still I still they still are. I'll 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 read on so many different topics that are seemingly unrelated from, you know, biographies to genetics to fiction and art and you know food and health and design and all kinds of different things and i think especially when 
you know, when you're, when you were young, you know, guidance counselors, teachers, parents, we sort of worry that our kids are, can be a little bit scattered, but I think that's actually something we should encourage um, because we need more creativity and we need to be able to make links between different topics. And, you know, today, you know, we, we certainly have that benefit and our, I think, you know, young people even more so you can be a multi hyphenate now, you know, you don't have to just be one thing. You can be a, you know, a scientist and a, and an entrepreneur and a, and an artist, and you can link those things. So, you know, for me, it was, you know, very, very early on, it was, um, it was, you know, I had an interest in, in buildings and design and architecture. I had an interest in, in science and I had an interest in health and I've brought those three things together, um, you know, in, in my career. And that's my, you know, that's my specific niche. That's my, my offering. Um, and it's unique to me. So I would encourage people to, you know, to have different interests and, and they'll, you know, they may come together, they may not, but I, I think that um, it breeds much more sort of creative uh, thought and solutions. And we have very complex problems that need that type of creativity and making links between different things. Um, you know, this another one. I think I would say I'd have I'd have three. Uh, so my second one is you know fail. Uh, I think it's important to fail once in a while and to see it as an opportunity for learning and for growth. So stretch yourself. You know, go outside of your comfort zone. If you're always staying inside your comfort zone, then you know you're probably not challenging yourself and you know drawing out the 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 deeper parts of your of your brain to, you know, to come up with, with solutions and to, um, you know, to learn from those mistakes and push the boundaries. For me, that's always been important also because of the, sort of the third thing. I, if I stop learning, I, I sort of, I get, I get bored. It's, it's my definition of, you know, of, of being in a really bad place. I, if I'm not learning, um, I, you know, I start losing interest in, in what I'm doing. And I think in most opportunities that we have and in most jobs and life situations and volunteering, you know, we can learn on a, on a technical level. So there's lots of technical subjects that we can read up on, we can learn, we can practice. And sometimes the learning is more in our skills and our, you know, being able to uh, work with people that we find difficult, uh, being able to improve our communication um, and sometimes the learning is, you know, the skill level and sometimes it's on the technical level, but always, always look for opportunities where you're learning, uh, stretching your boundaries, failing a little bit, learning from it. Um, and then, and drawing on your more, you know, your more creative, uh, parts of your brain to, to bring more innovative solutions to, to the complex problems we face. And that's excellent advice. Very, very Renaissance thinking there. <laughs> <laughs> not, it's not specific to climate change. If I, you know, if, if there are people who wanted to get into climate change and environment, I think, you know, it's it's really it's studying it. It's learning about it. And if, um, you know, there are lots of interesting, interesting jobs out there in climate change and, um, you know, your first job might not be your your dream job in climate change, but learn from it, grow from it. And it'll help you understand, you know, what you want to do and what you don't want to do. Uh, and it's as important to know what you like as to learn more about what you don't want to do and what you don't like. Um, 
But yeah, so these, like I said, these are probably not so specific to my area, but they're the sort of the three things that I've kind of, you know, after 25 years, I've realized have been really important to my career. Definitely. And thank you so much for sharing that advice. And, and I like that it's not, you know, specific to, <laughs> to this field that is very transferable. And, um, and I think, you know, myself and a lot of our, our listeners can definitely um, speak to that and speak to those formative growth opportunities and um, kind of failing as a way of <laughs> figuring out what works and doesn't work. And um and I want to thank you for joining us today, you know, for sharing your, um, your advice and your expertise and, you know, what drove you to, to be so passionate about your work. And thank you again for the work that you're doing. Um, and we want to give you an opportunity here to thank anyone that you'd like to, that's helped you along the way or, or give any mentions. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, there was, um, when I first started working, I, I worked, I was working for the federal government. I think it was my, it was my first real job. And at the time I had, um, you know, a manager, his name was, was Robert Patzer. And, uh, he, he was such a good manager that I didn't realize he was managing me. Um, <laughs> it was, it was such a subtle thing that I, I remember at the time being really annoyed. I would, I would write a briefing note and I would send it back to him, you know, to serve, to review, and he was a lawyer, so he, was, he had a very, you know, very specific and, and highly analytical way of presenting arguments. And he would probably send these things back to me about three or four times. And he wouldn't do it for me. He would give me the comments. He would give me the direction um, until, you know, after maybe two years of this, me being super irritated by it as well, I became really good at doing that. Um, and then, you know, as I, as I moved on and became a manager myself, Few, few few years later, I I realized how much I was modeling his um, you know management skills and everything that he taught me. And it was you know as I said, it was it was so subtle that at the time I didn't realize how formative the the guidance he was giving me was. So you know I would I guess my shout out would be to uh, to Robert Patzer. I like that. I like that. And that is a really cool. Um, management, you know, and leadership technique and that, um, so irritating. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> so important. <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. I've had, um, had some similar experiences working with, with management and leadership, but, but it's excellent. Um, but sometimes when you're irritated, you know, you do your best work. <laughs> yeah. Well, you just, again, you learn from it. It's sort of teaching, you know, teaching a person to fish rather than, giving them the fish. He, he taught me to fish. He taught me how to think. And, and then it's something that I was, I think, hopefully able to pass on as well. Just, just teaching you to think. Um, and, and he was, he's, he's been my model, I would say, um, you know, 25 years later. That's wonderful. I like, I like hearing his stories and we look forward to seeing, you know, what you have coming forward in your your journey through climate change and, and One Health. And um, thank you again for, for supporting that. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's uh, I'm really glad you're doing this podcast. It's, it's really important. And, and I appreciate being invited. Absolutely. Absolutely. And thank you. Thank you. It's been it's been a great journey on this end. <laughs> Super. Have a great day. Thanks.
Thank you. You too. To support the mission of One Health Wednesdays, please subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify and remember to leave a rating and review. You can find us on all social media channels and at onehealthwednesdays.com.